0: Welcome to Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity
1: Listening to Pop Health Week on Healthcare Now Radio. I'm Greg Masters, the Managing Director at Health Innovation Media, the executive producer, co-founder, and co-host of Pop Health Week. I'm joined today by my partner, co-founder, and lead co-host, Fred Goldstein, who's president of Accountable Health LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm. And Fred and I are thrilled. Today, we get to chat with an amazing woman that we met at the Jefferson College of Population Health, 19th Population Health Colloquium in Philadelphia in uh, this past March. Uh, Rita is a seasoned player, key thought leader, and respected author in the healthcare transformational space. Uh, Rita's most recent book, co-authored with Michael Abrams. Ma is uh, bringing value to healthcare, practical steps for getting to a market-based model. Uh, Rita Numeroff, Ph.D., is the president and co-founder at Numeroff Associates, a firm with a 25-plus year track record of rigorous structured innovation that has solved complex strategic and operational problems for clients in industries in transition, which certainly characterizes what we're looking at in healthcare. And more about Rita, her dedication, leadership, and passion have guided Numeroff and Associates into its third decade of continuous growth and success. From the firm's inception, Rita has focused on developing new business models for companies and industries undergoing major market changes. Her work has spanned industries that are critical to global uh, economic growth, financial services, healthcare delivery, pharmaceuticals, medical devices, telecom, and major industrial manufacturing, bringing experience, style, and boundless energy. Rita has applied her expertise to help organizations create and execute successful new strategies in the face of fundamental market shifts. Greta has a deep understanding of the challenges executives face in sustaining growth and profitability in increasingly fluid markets. As a result, she's become a trusted advisor to senior management teams across a wide range of leading companies. Her cross-industry perspective, combined with her expertise in executing strategy and optimizing corporate performance, are the basis for objective counsel that leading executives rely on. So, Fred, with that impressive uh, abbreviated introduction, over to you. Help us get to know this dynamic human being.
0: Thank you so much, Greg. And Rita, it's a pleasure to have you on Pop Health Week.
2: Fred and Greg, it's a pleasure to be with you both.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. And it really was uh, great to see you at the colloquium again and uh, catch up some. And I I was very excited, obviously, as we talked about, about the most recent report you did, which was the State of Population Health Fourth Annual Numeroff Survey. Um, And this is the fourth year you did it at the colloquium. What was the origin of this report? How did this all start?
2: Great question. And I think it ties into the very gracious comments that Greg started this off in terms of um, positioning what we're doing in the backdrop of our work. Uh, The roots of the survey really are tied to our strategy consulting process. The uh, last 30 years, um, as Greg mentioned, we have focused on industries in transition across multiple sectors. And industries go through this transition when they are either facing changes in the regulatory environment or shifts in technology or the competitive set or even a shift in market expectations. And when you have one of those changes, That in turn causes even leading companies to challenge assumptions about their business models, how they go to market, the nature of their products and services, the competencies that are required for them to succeed. It is wrenching change. And not surprisingly, most organizations, especially those that have been leaders in their industry segment, tend to make changes at the margins and they avoid making the needed investments that will allow them to succeed as the business model shifts. After all, they've been making money in the current model and nobody has ever gotten points for driving a business into a ditch. In healthcare, you have all four of these dynamics happening simultaneously. If we look at population health and the need to improve health, health outcomes at lower total cost of care through the lens of a fundamental business model change, then you begin to understand some of the sources of resistance. So it's, it's really based in the work that our consulting firm has done. The other stream is that in the mid-1980s, I'm really dating myself here, um, I had just finished my Ph.D., and I had predicted that DRGs would lead us down a path of poor coordination, greater cost, and poor quality, the exact opposite of what CMS, that was really focused on bending the cost curve back then, was trying to do. And the prediction was based on the fact that there was no connection between payment and outcomes, nor was there any accountability for care across the continuum. And my contention has been for at least that long that until we get to accountability for care across the continuum, we're not going to get to better health care, better outcomes, lower total value, we're not going to be able to get to population health. And so as we were working with healthcare delivery organizations to help them understand the opportunities as well as the challenges in moving to a new business model, we were aware of very many different definitions of population health. And sometimes they were even different in the same organization. And organizations were in very different places in their ability to master what we thought was going to be needed. And so at that point, we thought that having a comprehensive database look at how the industry was progressing over time would be really important. And that was when I reached out to David Nash and told him what we were planning and asked if he wanted to be part of the process, and his answer was affirmative. And that was when we launched um, our first survey, which we started about five years ago in terms of putting the instrument together, uh, getting initial uh, buy-in and validation and so forth for it. And as you mentioned before, we launched the results of the fourth annual survey in March of this year.
0: Fantastic. So what are some of the uh, key findings that our audience might find useful?
2: Well, I think the first finding is that most people think that population health is critically or very important to their future success. Uh, actually, about 82% of the people that responded, and we had more than 500 executives from across the healthcare industry that represent AMCs, large community organizations, large physician practices, and really reflect um, the geographic makeup of this country and also reflect rural, suburban, as well as urban institutions. When we started four years ago, people were very optimistic about being prepared to take on risk. And over the last several administrations, they have continued to moderate their expectations downward. Let me give you an example of that. One of the questions that we ask is how ready they think their organization will be in two years to be able to take on risk. In 2016, 61% of respondents said they'd be very or completely prepared. And in 2018, only 25% reported that they had achieved that goal. And when we asked them to forecast where they think they're gonna be two years from now, in terms of how ready they're, they're gonna be, around 20% predict that they're gonna be prepared.
0: So given all the discussion about we're moving to value-based care, this thing's coming, we're going with population health, what do you think has changed? What are the reasons that that you've seen such a substantial drop in, their, uh, in where they're at compared to where they thought they were going to be?
2: I think the, the biggest reason, Fred, is that They're beginning to come to terms with the fact that this really represents fundamental business model change. It isn't about tweaking the current model and playing around at the edges with regard to changes that have to be made. What's really striking to me in this year's results is that the second barrier that they identified is internal uh, changes to the culture. And I think, again, that this represents, they're recognizing that the changes represent a very different way of doing business and that they need to reinvent themselves. And the good news is they're recognizing that they're not prepared. When you get to be more concrete about what does this really look like, and it's not something out in the clouds um, and something you report to the board, we have uh, meetings in place and some concepts that we're playing around with, and you begin recognizing that this is about connecting your clinical and your financial uh, performance to outcomes that matter, and you've got to be competitively differentiated, that reflects um, very different work. The first barrier that they identified as a reason for not wanting to move faster is really understandable. It's the fear of financial loss, And this has been the top barrier that they identified over the four administrations of the survey. One of the things that I think is really interesting about it is that initially there was a tendency to blame payers for not moving ahead, essentially framing it out as, well, we're ready and we'd like to move to total cost of care, but the payers aren't ready. And, in fact, in our work with payers, they would tell us that they don't think that the providers are really ready, and on a carve-out basis didn't trust that providers wouldn't raise prices in some other area. So that was part of the reason, and there are others, but that was part of the reason that the payers were reluctant to move in this direction. But I think there's an increasing recognition of what it's going to take to get to a different model.
0: Is it... You know, is it, Rita, a recognition of what it's going to take or a recognition of what it's going to do to the organization? I noted in your report, and you in particular had this quote by, a, by by one of the facilities that said, you know, value-based models are still an ethereal concept for hospitals and that CFOs still think in terms of heads and beds and fee for service. So if the CFOs are still living in that model, but we fundamentally understand that to to get the savings, we've got to pull people out of that high-cost facility and use other services and et cetera. Is is that just a a sense now that maybe it's an intransigence versus a, hey, this is difficult to do?
2: Well, there's no doubt that there is a level of intransigence. If if you've been successful in a current model, you've got 30-plus years of uh, doing well, your systems have been optimized for that particular model. Human nature says, why change if we don't have to? And to the extent we can put the brakes on to doing something different, let's continue to, to do that and continue to, to count the cash with, with heads and beds. So part of it is um, when the numbers are good, there's resistance to doing it. There's also the resistance because it's how we've optimized our current infrastructure. I think that there's increasing awareness on the part of some organizations, and I think the future shift to population health is really going to be market by market and not just one countrywide or even statewide swarm toward that way. There is a path forward but it's not doing more of the same or thinking that if you just get big enough, the clout you might exercise in contract negotiations will somehow save the day. In fact, massive consolidation, Fred, might increase vulnerability as you're now internally focused trying to figure out how we're going to do things, and you've got more challenges in integrating disparate cultures. And so I think the key across the board is recognizing that you need a different model and that you also need to reinvent yourselves, but you can't do it too fast, or you are going to jeopardize the current model. And so mm-hmm. I think, uh, go ahead.
0: We'll keep going. No. I,
2: I, I think um, you know using a framework that allows organizations to to make the transition and ensure profitability at the same time is what's what's needed. It's not either or, and it, and it is different. It's not about throwing more money into IT, most healthcare delivery organizations have more data than they really know what to do with. So again, it requires conceptualizing a different model. A lot of CFOs have not been oriented or trained to be able to do that. It also means understanding what you're really good at and ensuring the disciplines are there to deliver in a consistent, predictable way.
0: Mm-hmm. And you do work. It's interesting because you do work across across these industries, et cetera. And there are other you know industries in this country that are innovating at an incredible pace and changing you know really rapidly. Is is there something within healthcare that is fundamentally different that keeps us from doing that, or things we could take from the other industries that would help us? As you say, you don't want to get way out in front of this, but it seems like we just seem to be getting further behind.
2: I think it's a really interesting observation, Fred. Uh, There are lessons in uh, other industries, and you can't just take somebody else's experience and some other industry's experience and adopt it wholesale into a different one um, in the same way that you can't just take something that's worked in a healthcare delivery market in one part of the country and adopt it wholesale and assume it's going to work in in your market. Um, That said... Um, one of the differences between healthcare delivery and some of the other industries where we work is that when regulatory shifts um, were identified, let's say even in the banking world, um, these organizations knew that there were financial opportunities and they needed to think about different ways of reinventing themselves. And while healthcare delivery has responded to regulatory restrictions and new regs that they have to put in place to make sure that they don't violate uh, stark regulation or they make sure they do what they need to to get paid. They haven't had the same orientation to business and competition and strategic marketing that has been true in the for-profit world. And so they haven't built the disciplines, again, because they didn't need to, for thinking about such things as service lines across a continuum and understand what it means to build a product and a product portfolio. And so it's some of that thinking that hasn't been part of the education of some healthcare administrators, and it certainly hasn't been the part of clinical training of physicians, nurses, uh, pharmacists, and, and other parts of the critical healthcare delivery team.
0: Mm -hmm. Given that training issue, whether it's a healthcare administrator training, as you talked about with the physicians, uh, obviously not getting that. I know David has really been pushing for getting population health out into the medical school curriculum and beginning that training. Are we going to have to wait for the next generation or can this, is is there enough here that we can begin to move this forward and have some meaningful impact on a broader scale than we currently see?
2: I don't think that anyone should expect we have to wait for the next generation. I think that that would be uh, really not a good um, basis for building curriculum. I think that schools need to help their students understand both a fee-for-service model and, and what they're walking into in most organizations today, and at the same time, what is required to make the shift because we are in transition on steroids and if the educational institution isn't able to arm students to lead in a world that's emerging to anticipate where we'll be and translate that into concrete operational realities i think they're doing their students a real disservice one of the the tasks of an educational program is to help students learn how to plan for, how to anticipate and plan for the future and to make that transition. If, if we're talking about teaching coders, for example, uh, to do what's required to do, that's one thing, but that's very different from what we need to teach future healthcare executives and future clinicians. And so, again, I think that these students are not being served appropriately if their institutions fail to deliver on that promise.
0: Mm -hmm. What's your sense of, we're seeing some, you know, fundamental things around the edge, these uh, globally capitated primary care networks and and physicians that we've covered uh, on this show, and obviously you've got the ACOs out there and these independent practice groups and other models. Are there any you think that are more likely to help push this along or more likely to produce results based on what you've seen?
2: That's a great question. And um, I, I will say that looking at the, the ACOs and the experience of ACOs um, as, as a way forward, I think is going to be problematic. Um, I'm going to use an analogy. Um, you don't learn how to swim by dipping your toe in the water. And one of the concerns that I've had about ECOs and some of the uh, BIPC pilots that have come from uh, the federal government as a way to have training wheels, if you will, and get organizations started in this, is that it's really not scalable. And it's done oftentimes aside from the main part of the organization as a whole, so you don't build in the disciplines that you need, and and the irony is, if you build the disciplines today that you're going to need for tomorrow, you wind up finding significant dollars that are being left on the table, even in a fee-for-service um, Medicare DRG um, basis. So there are things that they're going to reap uh, rewards for financially immediately by by taking this particular path. The other thing is that, ironically, we had a a very heavy uh, percentage relative to the number of ACO organizations in in the country. Um, We had a huge percentage relative to uh, what they represent um, reflecting organizations as a whole. We had about 65% of our respondents participating in either an ACO or some kind of at-risk bundle uh, payment versus what I think the national representation is. It's about 20%. So even for those organizations that have had more uh, exposure to some of these pilots and have done, in some cases, very well, they're also reporting that they're not nearly as prepared as they need to be.
0: So you, you talked about... Uh dipping your toe in the water um should they just dive in or is it real as you said they're not don't feel they're as prepared and are pulling back i know with the recent aco move to two-sided risk a whole group of them said hey we don't want to do that please pull that back is it it is is it time to maybe shift it further as cms is doing and just say we're moving this way but why don't you look even beyond this two-sided risk and start going to global or 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 more of a, a model like that and just figure it out?
2: Well, I think that global cap is where we need to be. And if the industry doesn't do it, it will be done to them in ways that they're not going to like, and I'm very concerned about that. But the issue of just diving in, if you don't know how to swim, uh, that's probably not a good idea. But having a, a construct, being able to conceptualize what a different model would look like, and, making sure that you have the pieces in place to be successful um, is, is very important. I'll, I'll share an example. Um, we were doing some work with a healthcare system in the South, and our focus was to do an assessment initially of how prepared they were to be able to move at risk. And our contact um, was the board chair of the organization, who was a pretty well-known um, M.D., and we had an educational session after we'd finished the assessment, and the board uh, work was open to executives from the healthcare system, and the deal was that they had to sit along the side of of the board table, if you will, and everybody needed to raise their hand if they wanted to get called on. So it was it was a pretty controlled um, uh, uh, Roberts Rules uh, rules the day, if you will. And I was walking them through this framework that described very specifically how you define the services, the kind of financial modeling that needs to be in place, the kind of guarantees, how you get there, how you need to align uh, providers and other partners across the continuum, and then ultimately be able to go to market with an economic and clinical value either for a service line or for an entire book of business. And I was in the middle of, of, of summarizing that where the CFO jumped out of his chair didn't bother raising his hand jumped out of his chair and he said oh my gosh i get it i can do this and i think it points to, i think it points to the the need not just to dive in and hope that somebody will throw you a life preserver but to understand first and foremost conceptualize what does it mean What are the different pieces? How do they fit together? What do I have in place today? What do I not have in place today? And how are we specifically going to take that journey to get there? Mm
0: -hmm. So as you look uh, to the future years for this survey, um, what do you expect might change over the next one to four years?
2: I think that there will continue to be slow movement, Fred and it will be market by market and as more innovative organizations start to break out movement will pick up speed I think disruptors will force change and those organizations that hold on to the status quo are going to find it harder and harder to be relevant as the model shifts I don't think that size is protective as the administration continues to push risk, which I think they will do, that will amplify the need to move in a new direction. I think that Jeff Bezos and other non traditional players who see opportunity in the discontinuities and the inefficiencies in healthcare delivery are also going to put pressure and they're going to offer an alternative. And I think that people are going to choose transparency they're going to choose access, and they're going to choose better outcomes at lower cost. These are not new problems. I don't think that anyone would agree we can afford the status quo because we're not getting value really that's commensurate with the dollar that we spend. And so as these disruptors continue to move forward, I think there will be more and more of a sense that it's possible and that if we don't move in this direction that we will be left behind. And so I'm, I'm very optimistic. I don't think it's ha- going to happen all at once. I think it, again, will be market by market. And it means that alternative models and the fortitude to re-envision how and what we're delivering is going to enable organizations to be successful in their markets.
0: Where are you seeing some of these innovations, or are there specific Places you might call out for people to take a look at? And we're about a minute
2: out. Sure. Um, I think that um, there are organizations that are, are, are prominent and they're not perfect. Geisinger, um, most listeners would, would know about already. They've been in this space for a long time. And they have interesting lessons both culturally as well as in their market, and they're in a unique market, so what's worked for them isn't necessarily going to work for others. There are um, private practice groups, primary care-driven groups that have done some really creative things. Um, And if anyone wants specific examples relative to to specific markets, I'd be glad to to share that. I think organizations are doing this in unique ways. Some of them are further ahead than others, and there will be different models that will work. One size does not fit all.
0: That's fantastic. Well, Rita, there's a whole bunch more we could go through uh, with you uh, on this show, and I'd certainly like to get you back on. And thank you so much for joining us this week on Pop Health Week.
2: It was a pleasure to be with you. And
1: there you have it. That'll be the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank our special guest, Rita Numeroff, Ph.D., the president and co-founder of Numeroff & Associates, for her time, passion, and dedication to the transformational imperative our industry no doubt faces. Do check out her work on the web by wwwnai Consulting.com and be sure to follow her on Twitter via at Rita, R I T A, Numeroff, N-U-M-E-R-O-F, N U M E R O F, and the firm via NAI Consulting. For Pop Health Week, Healthcare Now Radio, Fred Goldstein, Rita Numeroff. This is Greg Masters saying, Bye now.